Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Thank you for tuning in for episode 252 of HPO. For this episode, I spoke with Dave McGillivray. Dave is interesting to me for a number of reasons. He is the race director of one of the most popular and competitive marathons in the world, the Boston Marathon. He is a philanthropist who has used endurance sports, including ultramarathon running, to raise funds for charity. He has made an enormous impact on the Jimmy Fund, which raises money to help cancer patients. You don't have to be a runner or a humanitarian to be inspired by Dave. He shines a bright light on hard work and determination and will make you reimagine your own capabilities. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dave. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting the show. If you wish to support monetarily, you can find links to my Patreon page or PayPal link on my website, zachbetter.com forward slash HPO, or in the links in the show notes. If you wish to support the show non-monetarily, liking, sharing, and subscribing to this show on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube goes a very long way. Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. And especially speaking to somebody who may not think I'm 10 cents short of a dime or I'm not the shopper's knife <laughs> <laughs> in the drawer with all these crazy endurance things, but you can identify with them. So it's a, a pleasure to be on with you, Zach. Yeah, you know, it is always funny, Dave, when people, they, they always want to know kind of like, well, what's, they're nice about it usually, right? Like they, they want to know like why you do what you do, but they also want to know like, what's wrong with you <laughs> to a degree. Yeah. And, and one thing I share with folks usually around that topic is just that you don't really necessarily, at least I didn't make a decision one day. Okay. I'm just going to run, you know, like uh, what would probably be considered a margin of diminishing return, a number of miles uh, for an event or anything like that. You just kind of end up getting interested in something. And that leads to another thing that leads to another thing. Next thing you know, it, you're running across the country or you're doing a hundred mile race or uh, one that you're very familiar with, I'm sure is doing a double Boston, which I think is a pretty cool aspect to the Boston marathon that you don't see at a lot of the other big marathons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, you know, you can point to reasons when you were kind of in that same mindset as they were, perhaps I, I, I tell this story from time to time where my college cross country coach kind of outlined what we would do from freshman to senior year. And I remember thinking like, there's just no way I'm ever going to run that many miles in a week. And now here I'm today doing some of those mileages in single day sessions. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's just funny how your mind evolves, your body kind of catches up with you as you kind of go through the process and you find what you enjoy and you find inspiration along the way. And it's a, it's an interesting sport for sure. Hmm. So, um, you know, for me, it, it all started when I was a, a, a young boy growing up in the Boston area. My hometown was Medford, Mass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always wanted to be a professional athlete because Boston has the Red Sox, the Patriots, the Bruins, the Celtics. And it's just a real focused sports orientated community. And so it was prevalent and always there right in front of your face. And, you know, I wanted to be one of them. Um, But unfortunately for me, I was short in stature. And so, you know, I was always the last one cut when I went out for high school sports, basketball and baseball in particular. I was inevitably the last one picked when my friends picked sides and in the, you know, in the playgrounds or the park leagues. And that was pretty devastating. Um, No, I didn't have cancer or heart illness at the time or anything like that, but I've always felt there's three types of pain. There's physical pain, which you can train for. There's mental pain, which you can train for. But then there's that third one that's debilitating and that's emotional pain. And that's what I was going through, the feeling of rejection and that nobody wanted me. Even though I knew deep down inside, I was I was pretty good and I was good as, if not better than a lot of my peers, just because I was short, I was, I was identified and we'll take the short guy last, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I started, I started to run because nobody can cut you from running. And I said, then I'll, I'll choose an individual sport where I'll let my performance speak for itself. 
And that's generally speaking how and why I, I started running. And I've run over 150,000 miles since then. And I started setting all these personal goals of, of mine for me personally. Um, and that's how I, I get started. It's funny because when I was, when I was for the high school basketball team, I was the last one cut and this, the coach comes up to me and he puts his arm around me. He looked down at me. Well, everybody looked down at me. <laughs> and he said, Dave, if you were five inches taller, you'd be my starting guard. And I mean, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I looked at the coach and I said, excuse me? I thought it had to do with ability level, not how tall you were. So I challenged the center um, to one-on-one -on -one at 21. He was 6'5". I was 5'4". 0.387 <laughs> on a good day and I beat him and that was a defining moment in my life it really was I walked off that basketball court and I said never ever ever in my life will I let anyone tell me you know that I'm not good enough that I don't belong because there's always another path and I went home that night and I put a sign over my bed and the sign said please God make me grow and you know maybe he was on vacation and <laughs> <laughs> answering someone else's prayer because he he certainly didn't make me grow well well physically but then I learned that you can grow in many other ways that can be beneficial and can be assets and can be your little secret weapons and he made me grow morally and ethically and spiritually and intellectually and he made me grow internally because it's that's that's who defines you. What defines you is who you are inside, not who you are on the outside or who you are physically. And again, that's why I I started running. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think I've I've heard similar kind of a obviously not an identical story, but like a similar kind of mindset along running versus some of the other sports from other folks too, where you get to this point where there's a, so much subjectivity, especially when you get to the point of like, you know, trying to pick a team before you actually play another team and deciding who's going to make up the best part of that versus running where it's probably as close to a true meritocracy as you can get where, um, you know, I remember in high school, we just had a race at the beginning of the season. And if you finished in the top eight, you were going to be either seven on varsity, one alternate, uh, or you're going to be on JV. And that's just how it was decided. And the next meet would determine whether you stayed there or not. So like, you know, you could be the fastest person on the team. If you go and, you know, you, you put up a subpar performance at a meet and end up running slower than a chunk of the JV team, then you're earning your way back up on the varsity. Exactly. And I was, that was always an interesting thing where it's just like, I think it's just a really interesting lesson too, especially at that age where it really does kind of point you towards you know, hard work, getting the best out of yourself and being honest with yourself. Cause you know, we mm -hmm. all strip ourselves raw when you're running a race as fast as you can, where at the end of the day, you know, at the end, you cross that finish line, did I really give it everything or did I leave a little out there? And if you get beat by someone who you normally beat and you know, you didn't leave, leave it all out there, that kind of stings in a way that's direct to you. And there's really nowhere to put the blame versus mm. like a scenario like you had where, I mean, you could easily say, well, this coach just had uh you know a bias towards tall tall people that you know just for whatever reason that formula's worked consistently for them and they're gonna go mm. that way regardless and if a few casualties fall along the way so be it uh you don't see that as much in running is that is that what kind of drew you to to the running sport then ultimately yeah after? and you know I I don't do things to prove other people wrong you know I say like well I'm gonna prove them wrong you know he cut me I'm gonna prove him wrong right. <laughs> You cut me, you cut me. See you later. Goodbye. You, you, you know, you've left my, my bubble. You know, I want to do things to prove that I can do it for me, you know, and people say to me all the time, why do you run now? And back then it was, it was mainly, I, I just had this competitive instinct. I just like to be a competitor um, and challenge not only myself, but try to, drill everyone else into the ground as much as I could, you know, just, just as a competitor. And I still have that competitor passion and competitive fire. But for me, the end result is more about feeling good about myself. Um, people ask me all the time, what's the toughest part about running a marathon? And I always say, well, toughest part? 
signing the application, right? You know, having the guts and the commitment and the courage to, to make that to make that commitment. And then and then you have to do what I call earn the right. I mean, there's no free passes in this. You know, you leave it out there on the road. You know, you could be part of a basketball team and the team could win and you could get the winner's trophy too. But maybe you didn't really do much in a road race. It's all you, right? So you have to earn the right. So you earn the right and then you toe the line, you answer the gun, you run the course, you cross the finish line, you get a medal or whatever and magic happens. You know, you go home feeling good about yourself that you you had set a goal and you accomplished it. Now check it off the list and move on to the next one, right? People ask me all the time, you've done all these different runs and everything else. What's your best accomplishment? And I always say, my best accomplishment is my next one. It's like, what do you got for me lately? You're only as good as your last race. Yeah, but what about today? I, I always facetiously say when I'm driving in my car, I want to rip the rear view mirror out of the car and throw it away because I don't want to look behind, right? I want to live for today, plan for tomorrow and set new goals. So running allows me to do that on a, on a year-to-year, week-to-week, day-to-day basis. So I'm able to every single day, no matter what happens during the day, when I go out for that run and I come home, I feel good about myself. All those other issues that I had prior to taking that first step seem to have a way of dissipating. No, not totally going away if there are important things that I need to address, but, but the running basically sort of gives the day for me meaning. And, um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's the foundation, you know, feeling good about yourself is the foundation by which we accomplish everything else in our lives. And, and that's why I think, you know, years ago, it was a very competitive sport. Now it's more of a participatory, you know, activity for a lot of people. The walls of intimidation have crumbled. People are believing in themselves. When philanthropy entered the space, you know, people started saying, you know, I'm not sure I'm competitive or I want to get in there and mix it up with these people, but little Johnny down the street needs me. And so now people are doing it for a greater purpose. And that gives them the incentive to get off the couch and get in the event and get in the game. And once they smell it, touch it, feel it, experience it, they're lifers. You know, they're, they're like, okay, I did it for Johnny. Now I'm going to do it for myself. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, too. And I think uh, it kind of brings us to an interesting topic that you're very equipped to talk about, which is there's there's running and then there's, you know, running for charity and then running for charity to the degree where you find yourself on one end of the country and trying to get yourself to the other side by foot. So was that I'm really interested in this because uh, I've been following some folks and digging into some of the like stories behind some of these really long haul efforts and they're there are certainly folks out there who do it as like personal projects. I want to just test my limits and that's enough of a motivator for them to really just get out there and, you know, push as hard as they can from day to day. But there's also, a, I would say from what I've looked at, even a, a larger group of folks who are doing it for other causes as well. I'm sure there's some, some intrinsic motivation there, some, you know, extra, like I want to accomplish this goal for myself too, personally, but there's a lot of times a charity or a cause that's, I think, giving them a little bit of an extra push, maybe when the going gets really tough. Is that kind of what drew you into that longer stuff? Or did you have another interest originally that had you kind of in a position to say, hey, you know, the, the Olympic distance is, is cool, but I want to check out some of this other stuff too? No, I think you hit the, the nail on the head initially. And I'm not, um, I don't feel guilty about this. Initially, it was just a very personal thing. Um, you know, I had read about a friend of mine who biked across America from Medford, Mass to Medford, Oregon. He went east to west. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool that he could do that. I wasn't a biker, so I couldn't imagine what that might have entailed. But I thought, well, I'm a runner. And if he can bike across, I can run across. Well, it's an idiotic comparison because running and biking are obviously very different on the body but I still felt like, no, why don't you set this as a personal goal? But now you have to earn the right to do it. You can't just 
do it on a barroom bet. And so I started planning it out on my own. This is 42 years ago. And not many people had done it uh, prior to me. Yeah, there was the Bunyan Derby back in the 20s. And there were other people who had done it. I was the youngest to have ever done it, at least at the time. And so I started planning it out. And I was working in the Hancock Tower in Boston at the time. And I looked out the window and I saw Fenway Park. And I saw a sign in right field and it said, help make a dream come true, support the Jimmy Fund. I heard a little bit about the Jimmy Fund being the fundraising arm of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And I just thought that, you know, a light bulb went off in my head and I said, you know, there's gonna be times when I'm just gonna wanna pack it in. I mean, running 45, 50 miles every single day through the desert, over the Rockies, you know, the heat, the elevation, just all the conditions, the vehicular traffic, just all of it, the loneliness. I said, I, I'm gonna need something else, a greater purpose to pull me through. And that's when I went and I visited with the kids. And I knew at the time that the battle that I was about to fight by running over five and a half million footsteps across America was in no way as difficult as the battle for these kids fighting for their own life. And then I saw, a, a sign in the Jimmy Fund Clinic and a sign said, God made only so many perfect heads. The rest of them have hair on it. And it just left an indelible mark on me that these kids are suffering and these kids are fighting for their life. Um, and they're turning negatives into a positive. Um, they have that kind of courage and guts. So I said, I, I need that. And that's why I hooked up with the Jimmy Fund and ran across the country to raise money for cancer research. And Runner's World a few years ago was writing about all the different charity efforts out there today, Live Strong and you know all the different um, um, you know, charity groups out there. And they said that my run across America was perhaps the first time anyone had combined running with raising money for cancer research. I didn't know at the time that I might, might be a pioneer, might be setting a trend, but I think it did. And um, so, yeah, so ever since then, every single event I've done, whether it's running across the country again or running up the East Coast of America or doing 24 hour runs, 24 hour swims, 24 hour bike rides, all these different things, I've, I've hooked up with a, a, you know, a local cause and uh, have, have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, it's really incredible when you look at, you know, you just, all you have to do is look at your wiki page, actually, and you just see like the long list of different events mm. you've done for, uh, uh, for, for Jimmy Fund and other charities. And it's, it's pretty cool. And, and I really love your story about, or just the way you described it is like lockstep in kind of my experience to date with the transcontinental project i'm obviously i still have to do the running part of it so you're so much mm. further along than i am at the moment with the, what you've done but uh it was almost exactly the same where i i knew of the route you know for guys like yourself i was aware that that was a, a potential thing to do if you were a runner and you wanted to try to you know really invest uh you know upwards to a couple months into a project but i just never really had i think the catalyst to pull the trigger and say, let's put a date on the calendar and actually start digging into what it's going to take to do this until I met this guy named Justin Wren, who has a charity called fight for the forgotten. And he was just talking about all the hurdles they had to go over to try to go over to the Congo and acquire essentially clean drinking water for the pygmy tribe there who at the time didn't have even basic human rights. So when I'm thinking about that, like he's describing essentially before like half their tribe, which essentially is the women, would spend the entire day collecting water. Like that was their one job. Like there was nothing else they really could allocate them to do because without the water, nothing else gets done. So it's like, if it takes you all day to get it, then it takes you all day to get it. So they have no choice, but to keep taking that next step. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about that. It's like, if I'm out there in like, you know, middle of Nebraska, uh, you know, 50 miles into a day or something like that. And I need to go further and I decide I don't really want to go any further. I have a choice to stop, but I don't have to make that choice. And there are folks on this planet who don't have the opportunity to even make a choice to remove the physical discomfort, the mental discomfort, that sort of stuff. And I really do think when I'm honest with myself, that's what's going to get the most out of me out there. Like, you know, I'll, I can easily quit on myself, <laughs> but I don't know that I can be, I can like feel comfortable saying, 
yeah, I left a few miles out there, but it was because, you know, it was at the expense of, you know, a little less effort on my part and no one's going to know about it, mm-hmm. that kind of a mindset. And I think it's just, it's just, it's this big, not only are you trying to give back, but it's like this big accountability thing too, where you have this overreaching piece to the puzzle that really does kind of shine a, like a, a light on, on things and put things in perspective outside of just whatever kind of personal pursuits you're looking to do. Yeah. I mean, you're right on both accounts. I, I plan mine where it wasn't open-ended. I, I knew the date I was going to start and I knew the date I had to finish mm-hmm. because it was a date I finished in Fenway park in front of 35,000 people. And I was scheduled to run in at seven o'clock on August 29th, 1978. I had to be there. So I schedule it so that I, there are no days off, right? Uh-huh. So, so and, and I, I had this regimen where I'd wake up at 5.30 every morning unless I was in the desert and I'd get up early to beat the heat. I'd wake up at 5.30, be on the road at 6.30, run 10 mile splits, do it in 75 minutes, get in the motor home, rest or drink or eat for 10 minutes, get back out there, run another 75 minutes, do the same thing again and again and again throughout the day. I eliminated all decision-making. Um, there were no options. Like I had to get this done, right? And um, no matter what the weather was, it, it didn't matter. It's like, there's no such thing as bad weather. It's just bad gear or whatever, you know, that kind of mentality. You went out in whatever the conditions were. And I remember one day I was a thousand miles into it. I was in the desert, Eli, Nevada. And my left knee went out on me and I went, holy crap. You know, I got 15 miles into this day and not only can I not run, I can't walk. Like, what the heck? You know, I can't believe this is going to end here in the desert on me. So my support crew of three guys threw me in a motorhome and we drove to a hospital 45 miles away. And I walked into the emergency room and the doctor looked at my knee and he says, well, what do you think caused it? I went, I don't know. I was I was out jogging. (laughs) I mean, if I said I was running 50 miles a day, he'd say, stop running. Doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. <laughs> he's just going to tell me to take the days off. I take a week off from running. I, I don't have that luxury. And, you know, for me, in my head, I'm always, I'm always thinking about the cause, not the problem. And I said, I know I'm strong and fit, and this should not be happening. I'm fit enough to deal with 50 miles every day. And I said, okay, this doctor isn't going to help me out at all. So I left and I told the guys, drive me back where I left off. I got to keep going. And as I'm, as we're going, I said, well, what caused this? And then I finally realized what it was. And for me, especially in the desert, the road is really severely crowned, you know, and pitched. And so I was running all my miles on one side of the road. And when you do that around the neighborhood, if you're running five miles a day, it probably doesn't matter. But when you're running 50 miles a day, day after day after day, and you're running like this, you know, then it has an impact. And I said, I need to alternate. Even though I don't like running with cars coming up behind me, I like to see what is about to hit me so I can jump up, jump out of the way. I said, I'm not going to make this unless I do this and learn to run on the other side of the road too. So I alternated. And two days later, the pain went away. Now, if I didn't figure that out for myself, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have made it, you know? So everyone has to know their own body. Everyone has to know what, you know, how to avoid injury. I mean, that's really what these events are all about. Most people who make a commitment to do something like this, they're not stupid, you know? Mm -hmm. They're not gonna do it unless they're fit, you know, to do it. It's really about avoiding injury. And, the, and I was able to figure that out for myself. So that's just one instant where, you know, these kinds of things pop up along the way and you have to, you have to know what you're doing to figure out, you know, a solution. Hey folks, my friends at Eggweights are supporting this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you're not familiar with them, Eggweights makes a variety of ergonomic exercise equipment They have options for boxing and martial arts training, full body workouts with their torque force and torque board, a massage toolkit, and my personal favorite, their running pods. Eggweights 
were tested in the University of Southern California Exercise Science Clinical Research Lab and have been proven to do things like activate your core during running, intensify your arm drive, correct poor running form, and more. I love to take my running pods out in the afternoon for easy paced runs where I can focus and work on proper form and mechanics. Having a small ergonomic weight in my hand helps correct my arms from swinging out or too far forward. It also prevents my core from relaxing too much through my gait cycle. The running pods come in a variety of weights and colors. They also just recently launched their youth pods, which will be a great tool for kids, youth sports, and coaches to help develop proper form and mechanics from an early age. Head over to eggweights.com, that's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S.com, and click on the running tab to check them out. If you decide they are a tool for you, Plug in promo code ZACH15, that's Z-A-C-H-1-5, for an extra 15% off your order. These links and the promo code can be found in the show notes. Yeah, that's such an interesting point because I yeah, that's another refrain I've heard from a few people too. Where they say it's less about how fast you can run or your natural abilities with something like this. It's more about you know maintaining health, like not getting hurt because that's what's going to stop you in your tracks. And even a slow pace is going to get you there. So stay healthy and keep moving slow and you'll get there. And I find that interesting because I think that parallels another thing that's interesting about some of these longer endurance events, especially when you get up into the really long ultra marathon stuff is it's kind of less about whether something unexpected is going to happen. Like you can't really plan for a perfect day when you're doing say a hundred mile or a 24 hour or a transcontinental run, because things are going to happen. You can't plan for Uh, There's just so many variables. So you have to be open to this idea of when something comes that I didn't expect, I'm going to be quick. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to make the right decision. Then I'm going to move on and do what you said earlier, focus on what's going forward and not be staring in the rear mirror wondering what if. Um, Whereas I think when you get into some of the more Olympic distance sports, the beauty of that is it's almost like hinged a little bit on perfection where there's such a small margin of error, like a, a, a couple second mistake at the wrong mile and on a marathon can, can ruin the entire race for you. So you're kind of like trying to execute this, this perfect day. And I think there's some beauty in that as well, but it's just different. Is that what you kind of see on that, that landscape yeah. or am I missing some stuff? No, I, I think a lot of it is attitude, Zach, I, I, going in. You know, expectations, realistic expectations, attitude, flexibility, um, all those things come into play to your point about um, you can't control uh, things that are just going to come pop up that you you had no evidence of such um, that you weren't able to train for whatever it might be. Um, a, A lot of times when things like that happen to me. I try to flip it like like the kids in the Jimmy Funk Clinic, turning negatives into a positive. I try to turn a challenge, you know, something that was unexpected into a victory. In other words, it bring it on, right? Okay, I it, every day is just not gonna be 50 miles done, 50 miles done, it's nice weather. Let's let's lie down and take a nap. You know, it's yeah. all if it was that easy, everyone would be doing it, I guess, right? So you have to expect the unexpected and you can't, you can't freak out about it. You know, you have to take it on as an additional challenge because that's what these things are all about. It's not about the challenge. It's about the challenge plus <laughs> the unexpected challenge. And you have to be able to have the right attitude going into those to be able to deal with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really, a really good point. I think it's, it's just interesting to think about just the mindset of that and how that kind of like just continues on throughout the, the longer type of projects and things like that. And, um, you know, another interesting thing I wanted to ask you about, too, is that you have a unique perspective on is just the timing. So I'm going to start in September of 2021, which is, you know, we're getting close to 50 years from when you did your transcontinental run, which if you give it any thought, like we're talking about like so much difference just in the evolution of running technology in general, where, you know, I'm going to be essentially living out of an RV. Uh, I have GPX files. I have internet. I have all sorts of 
interesting little things that are going to perhaps give me a closer look at like injury prevention, just like what I can expect to get from one day to the next and things like that. Whereas I can't imagine you had anywhere near that type of stuff when you did it. So what was it like? Can you just tell us a little bit about just like what was the logistical structure of doing a transcon when you did it? Mm. Well, first of all, that's why I like talking to people like you. <laughs> you have you have an appreciation for, you know, the, the, the past and the present in terms of our space, our industry. And you're absolutely right. I mean, for me... I had to get AAA maps with a string and a ruler and chop my course on a paper map and hope that I calculated the distance accurately, which I didn't. I initially thought it was 3,200 miles. And when I got to um, Utah, I realized I was 200 miles behind schedule. I had called my dad up, um, collecting a phone booth, not by cell phone, and I said, geez, I'm this many days in and I'm only here. Did I miscalculate? And he said, yeah, I've been doing the calculations at home. And I think you're like 200 miles short. And I'm like, oh, man, I, that means I got to add. That's like, that's like four days, like five days, you know, that I'm behind already practically, right? So I had to add miles to each day to make up for it. Um, so just that alone is so different than being able to chart your course with all the technology that's out there, map my run or any GPS, um, you know, platform that you might want to use. Um, communication. I mean, talk about lonely, right? I mean, and I, and, and there was no, you know, but, you know, like headsets that you could wear and play music or listen to podcasts like this mm-hmm. or anything like that. You, you just listen to the crickets and the snakes buzzing around and the cars driving by and that's all you had. Right. So you are really into your head mm-hmm. um, and doing that for eight, 10, 12 hours a day in the middle of nowhereville, um, just the clothing alone, it's all hundred percent cotton. There was no tech shirts and this dry fits and there's none of that nutrition. I mean, my power bar at the time were my, were my mother's chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> she would mail me cookies to the, we would anticipate when I would be at the Lincoln, Nebraska uh, post office and she'd mail a batch of cookies there. And while I was out running, my guys would drive to the post office and say, Hey, is there a delivery for Dave? Yeah, here it is. And, you know, there's a couple of dozen cookies. Um, you know, they would just have to make whatever we could make in the motorhome for nutrition. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So the point being is that it was down and dirty. It was hard. It was just hard, you know, but that was okay. I, I don't, that's the way I run today. I don't have a lot of toys on me. Um, I don't go out and listen to music. I do it the same way. I've done it for 50 years. Um, just old school, but it works. Hey, listen, I'm 66. I've run 160 marathons. I've run across a couple country a couple of times. I've done the Ironman nine times in Hawaii. I've done all these crazy things, right? But look, I, no injuries. I'm good. I'm fit. I mean, yeah, I had heart illness, but that was genetics. That wasn't anything to do with my level of fitness. So for me, it, you know, why change it? Why change something that's seemingly working? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's just so interesting. I think one thing that I... Well, I'm thankful that I kind of picked up on early in my ultra running career because I could see this as being something where a positive gets kind of turned into a negative or just like becomes a sense of like anxiety versus a sense of accomplishment where like when you think of just like breaking a record, you know, I've been fortunate to break some world records. I've had world records of mine broken and um, it's easy, I think, for people to think like, oh, well, if your world record or your your project gets trumped by someone else's project it's easy to kind of think like well you know i did this they did that and kind of getting this idea of just trying to justify how yours was better (laughs) and but in the reality it's like none of the like you can't really break a record nowadays without having some benefit from the person who did it before you 
So like what I'm thinking about years, like I, mean, I had a perfect example of this yesterday, actually the guy who's got the record for the transcontinental run, Pete Carlson, just the nicest guy in the world. Um, he averaged over 72 miles a day. Uh, like it, just a phenomenal performance, but because he did that, now I have access to all sorts of information that wasn't there before. I've talked to him. I've talked to his main crew person and you know, like they're, they're not hiding anything from me. They're telling me everything I want to know about stuff that they made mistakes on where I can maybe fine tune things, things like that. And that's only going to get me from one end to the other quicker. So yeah. like, it's just like, I love to see when the the community looks at it through that lens of just like, you know, I did this big accomplishment and it's going to highlight things that either need to be addressed. If we look at like yours, like think of all the, like if, if the running industry as a whole had just looked at your project and went through with a fine tooth comb, imagine the technology that would have got spurred from that. Just be like, Oh, we need to have blister prevention for feet. That's better. We need to have better clothing for stuff like this. We need, you know, it could have just like accelerated things. So I think when we have that kind of openness about what you're doing and what's working, what's not working, it just puts that information out there to the people who can make things a little more smooth or add in things that will, will help kind of uh, us like progress, like the, the records and, you know, our ability to do these things at a, at a higher degree, uh, you know, going forward. So it's kind of like a, maybe a 180 spin from, I want to protect this at all costs versus let's see how, let's see how impressive we can make this particular endeavor when everything is accounted for as many things as we can imagine get accounted for. Yeah. And to your point about Pete, Pete and I are good friends. Um, I actually drove out to Pennsylvania when he was doing his run and ran with him for a few days. Um, you know, and it was fun to be part of someone else, someone else's transcontinental run while they were actually doing it. And he was picking my brain as we're running about how I did certain things based on how he was doing them at the time. And and I, he said similar things to me that you just said about well, back then it was, you know, I'm not saying harder or more challenging, but it was different, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, we share this common bond of um, understanding um, how this kind of thing gets, how this thing gets done. Um, and again, I, I never look at it as a competitive thing. Well, Pete ran more miles per day than I did, so he's a better ultra runner than me of or, or vice versa. I mean, everything's, we're all under different conditions and have different objectives, why we do what we do. I, for me, could I have run more miles each day and maybe got through it a lot quicker? My gut tells me, yes, absolutely. But that's not, that wasn't my objective. My objective wasn't to try to you know, at the time, Frank Giannino didn't have the record. I did mine before he did his, and then he broke the then existing record. He did it in 43 days or 46 days, and Pete did it in 42 or 43, whatever the numbers are. They don't matter because they're different courses and different lengths and distances and different times of uh, the year and whatnot, and some go east, some go west, all that kind of stuff. So there really shouldn't be a a racket per se, um, but people say what they say. Uh, but we're all in this thing together, and I, I think I think you know someone like Pete or someone like Frank or other people who have done it, uh, Dean. Um, at least we all share that common bond of what it's like to be out there banging out 40, 50, 60, 70 miles a day, one after another after another, and how do you just keep keep going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's really well put. And I do, I do want to transition over to kind of the Boston Marathon for a bit too, because I think it's mm. just really interesting when you told your, your kind of childhood story, uh, you know, growing up in the area, you're exposed to probably some of the most fanatical sports fans in the country, uh, almost across the board, when you just look at just the amount of support that is given to, you know, hockey, football, baseball, basketball, and that sort of stuff. When we get around to running in that sport, the Boston Marathon is, like I mentioned earlier, kind of one of the pinnacles of the sport of running. It's well known. It's well sought after, as you as you know as well as anybody. Uh, what is it like being an RD for the Boston Marathon? I mean, I gotta imagine as a kid when you're thinking like I want to be a pro sports athlete someday in my life, or I want to be involved in this someday. To think now, looking back at it, here you are sitting 
sitting and looking at that, you're, you're, you're directing what would be the equivalent of like, you know, you know, managing the Red Sox or something like that. Is that, yeah. do you have to pinch yourself with that one or is that, what's that like? Well, it's all evolution. Um, you know, we all, we all have a story to tell as to how we got involved um, briefly with me. Um, again, it came down to a defining moment. Uh, in 1970, I was helping my dad in his garage work on his car, and I was listening to the Boston Marathon on radio, and a gentleman by the name of Ron Hill from Great Britain won the race in cold, lousy, crummy weather. And unfortunately, Ron just passed away a couple of days ago. Um, but Ron ran, you know, 210 at Boston. I was 15 years old. I was like, I turned to my dad and I said, someday I'm going to run that race. And so two years later, I was a senior in high school and I said, I want to run Boston. So I picked up the phone and I called my grandfather who lived near the course. And I told him what I was going to do. And he said, I'll meet you at 24 miles. He said, fine. And my brother drove me to start. Now, again, recognize that I didn't earn the right to do this. I didn't even register, right? I was abandoned, <laughs> even though there weren't qualifying times. You had to be 18, I was 17, but I just wanted to give it a try. My brother drives me to start, I take off. In the hills in Newton, 20 miles into the race, flat out I go, get taken to the local hospital in an ambulance. Got home, called my grandfather. <clears throat> No answer. Called him again. No answer. Nine o'clock at night, he answers the phone. I said, Grandpa, where have you been? He goes, where have you, where have you been? I've been waiting for you all night. The old man, Kelly, goes by. The street sweepers go by. No Dave. I said, yeah, he failed. He goes, you didn't fail. I said, what I do? He said, you learned. I said, what I learned? He said, you learned you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. You didn't earn the right to do it. I'll cut another deal with you. And I said, fine. He says, you train for it next year. I'll be there waiting for you. I said, fine. Two months later, he died. And I just said, I got to do this for grandpa. I turned 18. I was doing 120, 130 miles a week. I was officially registered. I'm doing this. The day before the race, I got sick. My parents said, you can't run. I said, I have to run. The newspapers are saying, Dave, running in memory of grandfather. I said, please give me something that very few other people have ever given me before in my life. What's that? A chance. That's all I want is a chance. Isn't that all any of us ever want in life is a chance to do something, to accomplish something? Fine. Drove me to the start. I took off. Oh, they were right. I was so sick. I said, I'm never going to make this. I get to the point where I dropped out the year before and I'm doing the survivor shuffle over the hills and I make my way through there. And finally at 21.5, boom, down I go again. So here I am sitting on the curb, head in hands. And I'm just saying to myself, what a loser. You know, I want to be a, an athlete. And I, I'm the last one picked, the last one cut, drop out of my first Boston, drop out of my second Boston. Then another defining moment happened. And I turned around and I looked behind me. Behind me was the Evergreen Cemetery. And that's where they buried my grandfather. And he said he'd be there. Now he wasn't there spiritually. There's his tombstone right there. And I'm saying that son of a gun said he'd be here. <laughs> Maybe not physically, but spiritually he's there. And he said, he kept his end of the deal, get going. I picked myself up and I finished in four and a half hours. And I said to myself on that day in 1973, I'm going to run this race every year for the rest of my life and honor a tribute to the lesson my grandfather taught me. So I ran it for 15 years in a row. And then I got off at the job to direct it. I'm like, ah, I made this commitment to running it. I'm an athlete. You know, I'm not a director. Well, I am a director, but I want to run in the race. So what do I do? Do I run in it? Or do I help run it? Direct it? Yeah. I said, well, how can I pass up this job? I got to take the job. I took the job standing at the finish line, 1988, high five and all the runners. And I'm like, this is awful. I was so <laughs> full of self-pity, right? Yeah, cheering on all the runners, but feeling so bad about me that I hadn't run. So I tapped a police officer on the shoulder and I said, officer, do me a favor. He said, what? I said, will you drive me back to the start? He goes, why? Did you forget something? I said, yeah, forgot to run. <laughs> so he drove me back to the start at eight o'clock at night. And I took off and I ran all by myself. I finished around 11 at night. I was the last finisher of my own race. 
And uh, I've been the last finisher for the last 34 years. And, you know, I have a motto in my life and it, it's my game, so it's my rules. I just do it my way, right? That's the way I can do it. So I direct it during the day and I run it at night and I've been the last finisher of the Boston Marathon. But I get the opportunity to see both sides of the fence. I see it from the race management perspective and what we all have to go through to to produce the holy grail in the in the sport and i have feel an obligation and a responsibility to put on the best possible show for all these runners who have earned the right to be there by qualifying from all over the world but at the same time looming in the back of my head throughout the day it's like oh my god i gotta do this too you know and i'm so tired and i haven't eaten all day and i've been on my feet since four in the morning and now i gotta go run a marathon but that's what i do All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And I think folks who are, uh, you know, they're familiar with uh, just what it takes to direct a race. Most people probably don't see the back end of that all that closely, but it is exhausting. I mean, there's, there's sleepless nights, especially the nights leading into the race itself, because if there's a problem, you know, you have to address it. And I mean, it doesn't really matter how many people you have helping you. There's always going to be things that kind of keep you up at night. And so to do the marathon at the end of the day, after something like that, when most people are ready just to say like, we made it through. Okay. Now we can kind of catch our breath and start planning again for next year. You're hustling over to the start to kind of do it again. I think like that's just kind of a cool testament to your drive and uh, your dedication and just genuine excitement for the sport itself to, you know, on fumes, want to, want to even kind of take that on. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when when I decided to do it that way, I thought it was a good idea, but I was like 30, five years old or whatever I was. And, and now I'm 66. So it's getting more and more challenging, but um, so October is the race. So I'll do it then that'll be 49. And then next April. So less than, less than a year from now, I will have run my 50th consecutive Boston marathon. So we'll see where it goes after that, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that particular uh, milestone of running the last 50 Boston marathons. That's awesome. I think I got one other kind of question on the Boston Marathon and as an ultra marathoner, I have I, I have no choice but to ask this one. What is the history behind the double Boston where folks will start? Um, I believe they start backwards, right? They start at the finish and they run to the start and then they start and then run the full marathon after that. Yeah, it's just, again, personal goals done by a handful of people. They inevitably most know who I am and they call me, email me in advance because they don't want to run all the way out there and then get trapped where security says you can't get in. And they, you know, they want to be assured of access, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm reached out to. And so I'm aware that they're on their way and I make sure that they can get, get into the, get into the uh, starting, you know, corrals and whatnot. But, um, and there are people who've done a triple, you know, they've started at the start, run to the finish, turn around, run back, and then run with the race and go that and do that. So, you know, it's an open road. Do it, do it <laughs> But people do that just because they want to do it, you know, and they don't get any recognition for it other than self-satisfaction. There's no official aspect to any of that. Um, they'll get their credit for running the marathon, but that's all they'll get credit for. Um but that's pretty amazing that they don't get credit for the double, um, but they still do it because it's really how they feel about themselves. That's the important end result. 
Yeah, I think with with a sport where a lot of times the the incentive is a, a belt buckle and a bottle of beer at the finish line, that's <laughs> those yeah. folks don't always need a whole lot of incentive other than being told at some point that it's silly. And then they're like, OK, well, I guess I want to do it. Yeah. But by saying triple Boston, I'm sure you've invited some quads coming up in the future if that hasn't been done already. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there'll be people doing it. Who knows? Yeah, there's no end of that stuff. The, I did the um, a couple of years ago, I did the World Marathon Challenge where you run seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Um, you know, and and people would say to me, I can't believe you ran seven marathons in seven days. And I was like, that wasn't the difficult part. You know, it was the rat race in between. Yeah you know, trying to, you know, get all your gear together and get on a bus and go to the airport, jump on a plane, fly 12 hours, get off the plane, get on a bus, take all your stuff with you, you know, drive to the venue, get off the bus, run a marathon, get back on the bus, go back to the airport, get back on the plane, fly another 12 hours, get the, you know, just a rat race in between this sleep deprivation on the plane, trying to recover at 35,000 feet. Um, to, to get up and, and run another marathon and, you know, nutrition is all out the window because you're on a plane, you're eating plain food, you know, um, it's not like you go in a restaurant. So, so it can be done, uh, right. It's just a matter of preparing properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the logistics there are insane. I think I mean, I've done enough international travel now where it's like you get, you fly far enough and you get there and you don't want to do anything much less run a marathon. <laughs> so I think yeah. that's, that's interesting though, just the, the different kind of challenges of that. And uh, it, it actually reminds me of, uh, I mean, you probably know Mike Wardian. Um, He's a good what, friend. Yeah. He, he, I can't remember when this was a few years ago where he decided it would be. He did 10. Yeah, he did 10. And then he also did, he tried to break two and a half hours in a marathon in the same day. And he yeah. did, I think it was the Houston marathon in the morning. Then he yeah. flew to Vegas and did the the Vegas one because it was in the evening. Yeah. Um, I think he missed his goal by a few minutes, but just hearing him talk about that, just like, you know, you run a marathon in the morning, you're already in a big energy deficit, especially if you're trying to run a sub two thirty because there's only so much you can do running at that pace. Yeah. He's like, I should have been eating more on the transit over, but it's such a three ring circus, just getting to the airport, getting to the start line in time for the next one, you could easily forget to eat enough. And um, I just think that's, th- yeah. these type of things are just really interesting. And Mike's another one of those guys who's always looking. Well, that's why like, I, I, um, I always wanted to play second base for the Boston Red Sox, never got the opportunity. So that's why I ran into Fenway park. And that's when I realized I was the athlete. I always wanted to be, I couldn't play in Fenway, but I was going to run in Fenway. Right. You found your way in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I found my way in there with people cheering and screaming and yelling. And then I decided to put on a marathon inside Fenway Park along the Wanting track, 116 laps. So I called Michael up and I said, you want to come and do it? He goes, yeah. So I got 50 people together, myself included. Michael won, of course. Um, but we ran 116 laps around the Wanting track and uh, ran the first marathon entirely inside a major league baseball park. And then I did it again a year later at Gillette Stadium so it was the first NFL stadium where a marathon was, and Michael came on that one too, but um, did a marathon inside. So, yeah, I just, I like to, you know, come up with these ideas, these unique ideas and get a bunch of my ultra friends and say, want to do it? And of course they're like, yeah, of course. No. <laughs> so yeah. It's a great group of folks to bond with and, and do these kind of crazy things. It's, it's the one group where like you almost have to up the ante on the craziness in order to get them excited before, like, you know, yeah. you, usually you got like, is this too crazy to get anyone involved with them? It's like, is this crazy enough that there's going to be enough interest in it? So. <laughs> well, it's funny because when I decided to do the Fenway Park Marathon, you know, the folks at Fenway at the Red Sox saying, you're never going to get anyone to do this. That's crazy. You're running around circles for five hours. I said, watch. And I put it on my Facebook Page. I said, I'm thinking of putting on a marathon inside Fenway. Anyone interested? Well, and the thing lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, come in, come in. You know, so you never know. That's awesome. Uh, Dave, I want to be respectful of your time because I know you've yeah. got other, other things on your calendar today, but I want to give you an opportunity uh, if you want to share anything about where folks can find you, whether there's anything coming down the pipeline for you with yeah. books, websites, social media, or anything like that. 
Well, the, the, the thing I always like to end with is, um, you know, what I went through the last couple of years and just to create an awareness more than anything. And that is, you know, I've run all these miles and done all these crazy things. Um, and I always felt like probably a lot of people listening that I was invincible, that nothing was going to bring me down or to my knees. And, and um, you know, and I, I, I recently found out that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. I thought it did. And maybe I broke some rules along the way because I thought I could get away with it more than anything. You know, I didn't get enough sleep because I want to get the most out of every day, stress in one's life, taking on too much, maybe nutrition, not being perfect, not being bad, but not being perfect for um, trying to fuel the, a body that's constantly going. Um, and I was diagnosed with severe coronary artery disease. And, um, and that's, you know, I turned to the doctor and I said, wait a minute, are you sure you're looking at the right charts? <laughs> Is that really me? He goes, that's you. And I said, holy, I said, well, zip it up. He said, what? I said, don't tell anyone. He said, why? I says, because it's a ding in my armor. Like, I don't want anyone to know that I'm ill, that I'm sick. Everyone thinks I'm this picture of health. And then it started leaking out that I had coronary artery disease. And people said, geez, if it can happen to him, it can happen to me. And they went in the hospital and got diagnosed themselves and walked out with three stents. And they said, hey, you saved my life. Yeah. I said, I didn't save your life. You saved your own life. They said, well, yeah, but just the fact that you went through this, created an, an incentive for me to get checked. And then, so then I just went on this tear and long story short, I, re, I reversed my coronary artery disease by over 40% because I changed things up, but, but then it came back. And then I turned to my heart surgeon who was ready to operate on me. And he's, I said, I have one question to ask you in six months from now, there's this little jogathon in April in Boston I've shuffled through it a few times. What do you think? And he gave me the best possible answer. He didn't say, no, I don't think you could do it. Or, yes, I think you can. He said, I'd be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. <laughs> That's what I wanted. He, he gave me that four-letter word, that hope, right? And I said, okay, I'm sick, but I can get through this, right? I can get through this. Like the little kids in the Jimmy Fun Clinic fighting, you know, chemotherapy, I can fight heart surgery here. And so I said, okay, let's do it. So I had open heart triple bypass surgery. And I, you know, I, I'd never been through it before. So I, it was a learning process of both recovering and not being foolish and risking my life with trying to train for a marathon all at the same time. And I went out and ran the marathon at night for my 47th consecutive then. And so the lesson learned here is the, the awareness that um, again, just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. If you feel something, say something. You know, I have seven friends of mine who've run well under two, 220, went out for a run one day and never come home. And I don't know, maybe they were in denial. Maybe they, I don't know, they thought they could push through the pain. Don't push through wanting pain, push through challenge and pain. You have to be able to distinguish between both of them, know your body and what you can or can't get away with. And we're not invincible, as I once thought we were. And now I'm, I'm healthy again. And I've run eight marathons since my open heart surgery. Um, but I might not have run one more <laughs> if I didn't do something about it. And I do believe that sometimes the most fit athletes on the, in the world are the most vulnerable because they're not paying, they're not paying attention. <laughs> they think they're invincible and we're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when everything on the outside is uh, says like, yeah, your risk factors are incredibly low, then you don't ever get around to getting looked. But if you have multiple risk factors, there's people keeping an eye on you. So like, there's some value in that, I think. But um, exactly. it's a great, it's a great message. I have no doubt, you know, someone like yourself, bringing that to the public's eyes, sending people in, getting looked at and, and saving lives. So I think that's a pretty cool story to, to end on. Yeah. But but Dave, thank yeah, thank you so much for taking some time and, and coming All on right. the podcast. It was it was great to hear your perspective on a variety of things. And cool. um, I'll be excited to kind of see what you're up to next and obviously continue to follow uh, follow you and everything else along along the way. All right. Well, good luck with your planning, training if on your tra transcon. That's so that's a that's a definite for September. 
Yeah, yeah, we have uh, September 1st is when we're looking to start. We're go- I'm doing San Francisco to New York, so that'll okay. be the route. I'm going to do the exact same route Pete did. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so. good for you. All right, well, keep me informed, and I'll be following you too. Awesome, well, thank you so much, Dave. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped, balanced, cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. Eggweights is offering 15% off their running form, strength work, and recovery products. Finally, Purpose Performance Wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel, including my own signature series. So head over to zachbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more. All right, folks, now back to the show.